Hi, and welcome back to the show. Today, I have David Pritchard joining us once again. He is a regular on the podcast. He last joined us on episode 360, if you want to go back and have a listen to that one. Today with David, we are exploring uh, another interesting topic surrounding outsourcing and what I believe is the shift towards global employment or basically a single global labor pool. So I see that as the future. I see that happening in somewhere between the next five and 20 years. Now that is really significant for the world's workforce, for the labor, and basically everyone in the world. Uh, Historically, people have always been restricted to work and economic opportunity where they live, but that is quickly changing with the move to digital work. Uh, And as we all sort of migrate towards a more digital reality and more of the work becomes digital in nature, it opens up these huge opportunities for the world's labor force to contribute to any company from wherever they are sitting in the world. Uh, I see this as a huge opportunity for everyone in the world uh, but some people see it as as a risk, as a concern that you know people from cheaper countries can be taking uh, their jobs, their high paid jobs. And you know what about the borders? What about the protection? What about sort of economic viability? So we discuss all of this today, uh, David and I, and we sort of try and chip away at a few of the arguments and explore this situation. Uh, certainly for myself, I'm quite optimistic, and I see a fantastic future ahead of us when we have one single global workforce. Anyway, so I hope you enjoy. As always, if you want any of the show notes, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Outsource Accelerator. We are the world's leading outsourcing marketplace and advisory We help big and small businesses with their outsourcing needs, and we can help you too. We cover everything from offshore business and staffing strategy, optimal outsourcing structures, implementations, and fully managed services. If you are already outsourcing, about to start, or are somewhere in between, then we can ensure that you get the best from outsourcing. That's the best prices, best terms, and of course, the best results from your offshore operations. The Outsource Accelerator Marketplace now covers over 3,000 outsourcing firms, representing a global workforce of over 5 million people. We also host this leading outsourcing podcast, publish inside outsourcing, and have over 15,000 pages of content on the site. Because we span the entire market, we can ensure that you get the best deal possible. Get in touch today. Visit us at outsourceaccelerator.com slash quote. Also, if you find this podcast interesting or valuable, please share it. We have now produced hundreds of episodes featuring the outsourcing world's most prominent luminaries. Please show your support by sharing this podcast today.
David Pritchard, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you on the podcast again. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you, Derek. Thanks for having me back. And uh, it's great to have you back. Last time we, we covered an ethical topic, uh, whether outsourcing and offshoring is good or bad. Uh, and I wanted to get you back to explore maybe another uh, ethical topic or, or something that um, can be a little bit controversial. But uh, we're going to explore labor migration and uh, the lottery of birth and where people are born and the opportunities that they are presented with in life uh, dependent on where they are born and the country that they're in uh, and how that is all changing as there is more outsourcing and as work becomes more digital and maybe we'll also see you know from the government perspective how they can police and oversee these things so hopefully this is going to be a, an exciting an exciting podcast, David. Uh, let's see how we go, of course. David, I think first, why don't you introduce yourself and, um, and that will give the audience a little bit of background into you and then we can dive into it. Thank you, Derek. Um, it's nice to know that I've got the highest count under my belt of appearances on your podcast. Uh, why you keep asking me, I'm not entirely sure, but obviously... Um, the conversations work for you. So uh, I'm David Pritchard and uh, I am uh, the country manager currently for a company called The Nile, which is an Australian online retailer of uh, books, toys and baby accessories, among other categories. And our company has a fairly large operational presence in the, well, I should say large by our own internal standards, operational presence in the Philippines. We have about 50 employees uh, who do wide range of functions for us, including customer support, uh, back-end accounts, um, analytics, and various other things. And uh, that workforce reports up to me. So that's uh, my day job. And uh, yeah, I've been based here in the Philippines, involved in the outsourcing space, I guess, not as a seller, but as a, a user. And then an in-house outsourcer in the sense that our employees work directly for us um, for about eight years. And uh, I'm very well established in the Philippines, love it here, um, and find the outsourcing space to be a very interesting one to work in, um, and as is often highlighted in various podcasts you do with different guests. It's a really fascinating topic and a really exciting space to be working in. And your second job, David, is as a as a philosopher, armchair philosopher, of course. Of uh, and you're also a uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, Ayn Rand uh, uh, aficionado, yeah, aficionado, <laughs> and uh, head head of the Philippine Ayn Rand group. Would you call it a group, David? Yes, I would. I mean, that's more a reflection of um, the fairly low penetration that Ayn Rand's ideas have in the Philippines so far, rather than any great achievement on my part. But um, yeah, so I, uh, I have an interest in, uh, I have an interest in philosophy, particularly philosophy that is applicable to how we lead our lives um, and to, to achieve more in life and to do so in a way that um, is consistent with, uh, with man's nature and man's needs. So I do have an interest in that. Um, and the, that was highlighted, I guess, in our last podcast, where we went a little bit deeper into the, the ethics of outsourcing. And so I do run a philosophy group here um, on Facebook and uh, through other channels where we promote the ideas of Ayn Rand, who is the philosopher, 
that uh, I most subscribe to. And her philosophy is called objectivism. So anyone in the Philippines with an interest in learning more about that can um, can find me on Facebook and find our group, which is uh, Ayn Rand Philippines. And the last episode that we had you on was episode number 360. So if, um, if anyone wants to go back and uh, wants to hear that ethical, raging ethical debate that we had back there, uh, do go and do that. So, David, we have introduced the, the topic for today. Do you, is there anything there, obviously, you know, you knew what we were talking about today. Is there anything there that, that sticks out to you as kind of a glaring example of, of what has changed or um, exemplifies exactly what we're going to talk about today? Well, it's, a, it's quite an optimistic topic, really, um, because I look forward to a world in which there is more freedom for people and their labor to move around and seek out opportunities globally. Uh, I think that's a very good thing. I think throughout the world, and you, you highlighted it when you spoke about the, the lottery of where you're born, various disparities, you have vast populations of skilled, talented, um, well-educated people with a great deal to offer. Uh, but because of the country where they happen to have found themselves born or inhabiting and the economy of that country, various other factors, the politics, um, the culture in some cases, they have limited opportunities within the physical space where they are. Um, and yet you also have around the world, first world countries, um, which have restrictive uh, border policies in terms of migration, where there's a great deal of need for more skill, um, but it becomes very expensive um, because of these restrictions. And, you know, if you're the basics of, you know, being an entrepreneur is finding opportunities like that and connecting different parties that if they are able to find a way to connect them, they can achieve wonderful things. Um, and, you know, outsourcing as an industry um, has, has contributed a great deal towards closing those gaps and matching skill with need. Um, and it's an ongoing process, but it fills me with a great deal of optimism that this is happening in outsourcing. Um, and the facilitation and is really technology, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, previously people had to be physically present when, if they were going to contribute. So if, if it was in the industrialization, they had to go to a factory. And of course, Correct. the factories would then bring the economic opportunity. And prior to that, it would have been, it would have been farms, you know, and people then collected in these sort of urban areas. And uh, if there wasn't a factory near you or your particular country wasn't doing very well, then it really limited opportunity. Whereas technology now means that people can pick up a job, uh, even a, you know, a first class uh, developed world professional career uh, from sitting somewhere in the province in the Philippines. Like, it's it's never before had that opportunity, has it? No, that's right. I mean, you know, the the, the, the movement of, of labour towards where it's most needed has always, well, hasn't always happened, but it's that's a story that predates outsourcing. I mean, the, the examples you provided, right? So there's been, there's been migration to economic opportunities when it was available, um, you know, and in the, and I guess in the age of the, 
early 20th century, late 19th century, there weren't so many political restrictions. People, if they were able to afford a boat ride and get on a boat, they could move to somewhere like the United States or wherever the opportunities were. And then they faced all sorts of hardships um, to start with. But, you know, if you, if you could make that journey and do the investment and find a way to do that, then you could go out and seek opportunities. Um, then, of course, more restrictive border policies came in. And so even if you could manage the journey, you might be blocked out because you simply aren't allowed to migrate to the country you want to go to. But even under those conditions, you know, these two forces, right, um, the need for quality, cost-effective labour and the need for skill to find an outlet um, managed to find themselves. So you had, um, in the Philippines, we call them the OFWs, the Overseas Foreign Workers. Um, there's a long tradition going back several decades of them travelling around the world in various industries, most well-known, of course, construction and nursing, um, but many others as well. It's not just those two. Um, seeking out opportunities and sometimes at great hardship and expense and difficulty, in fact, al almost always, um, and often, often existing and working as second-class citizens in some of the countries where they go to work because they, have, they may be allowed the right to work, but they're denied various other rights that other people in those countries have. Um, and then, of course, you've got the other way where companies might say, well, you know, there's an opportunity in manufacturing, the labour cost is lower in this country or that. So they make the huge investment in moving plant to that country. And so the factory moves to where the people are. Um, but in both cases, you've got a massive outlay. You've got a massive amount of expense that has to be undertaken before you can even start to make that work. Um, and that often is a barrier to entry that precludes it from happening, right? Um, it may be too difficult for the factory to move to a certain country for various reasons, for cost, the barriers to entry in that country politically. And um, it's not practical for a lot of people, despite having a, a decent degree of skill and ability necessarily to move. You know, they have their families and so forth where they live. Um, they may not at this particular point be sufficiently skilled to get a job in the first world, even if they can move there. Um, people people so, are quite immobile generally, aren't they? I mean, you know, some, like you can, in theory, fly from here to New York, but yeah. it, it's it's not achievable for most people. You know, there's border no, controls, right. of course, but even, you know, there's very few people that can really just completely pick up their family or move there or even have the inclination to move away from their community and um, their yeah, support I mean, even, systems, their culture. Uh, it's hard, isn't it? Yeah, especially, I mean, as I'm kind of learning it, so as I'm just on the on the cusp of middle age and I have a young family, I'm starting to realise that <laughs> jetting around the world, even if it's available economically, is not always the most desirable thing. You start to lay roots and you want to stay where you are and you have connections with your community. Mm. Um, and then, of course, in some cases, even if you want to, you know, the vast majority of the world population don't have the means to travel a lot, right? Um, it's just not practical. Um but what the technology of outsourcing allows is that with very minimal outlay, right, um, a computer and an internet connection um, or, a, you know, going and getting a local job somewhere close to your home, um, you can wet your toes in, um, in wor effectively working abroad and servicing a foreign market. Um, so you don't have that barrier to entry. You can get in there straight away and then you can start delivering value straight away um, and in some cases, if it doesn't work out, that's fine. You haven't taken a huge risk. But if, assuming it does work out and you start to develop a career, then you have a massive opportunity to upskill. Um, and 
people that enter outsourcing at a junior level, um, if they get the right kind of work, if they get quality work, are able to massively increase their own skill and their own value to employers, um, starting sometimes from a relatively low starting point. Um, and then suddenly massive value is created for all parties um, because you've got, you've got a delivery of service and you've got upskilling without that initial barrier to get over, which is usually based on geographic proximity and political barriers that have been erected. So employment then is really just like any supply and demand, isn't it? it it's people offering services and people requiring services. And that is, it's a two-sided marketplace in that, you know, if you have a business in the US and you cannot find staff or you can't find the right staff or you can't find affordable staff, then your business and your opportunities will suffer. So the employers need access to labor pools as much as the workers need work. So again, it's a it's an equilibrium, isn't it? The the interests are balanced, and when there are restrictions such as you know geographical restrictions, uh, either you know just because of where people are based or because of um, migration control, it, it limits that equilibrium, and that's why you see pockets of very high salaries. Australia is a prime example where it is an isolated island in the middle of the ocean and they have very yeah. tight immigration controls. So there are you know, incredibly high salary costs there, uh, which, is, right. which has an impact on businesses. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think you touched on the beauty of what trade really means in its purest sense. Um, trade is an interaction between two parties in which both parties judge that that interaction is to their benefit. And by coming together, together they ultimately create more value and they both sides enter into it because they have something that they need or something to gain. Uh, and so you laid it out. Employment is no different. Um, you, have a, you have an employer or a business, in most cases, with a, with a need for, for labour, uh, skilled or otherwise, and then you have somebody that has skill to offer that needs an income. Um, and in addition to an income, they, they're seeking out a job because they want fulfillment, because we get fulfillment in life. Um, through working productively, whatever the endeavor is that we may choose. Um, so that is the beauty of trade. And often barriers come up that prevent those two parties from meeting together. Um, you know, and, and you gave the, the case of a, of a developed first world economy, Australia, uh, with um, highly restrictive immigration policies. And the justification usually for those, are, oh, well, look at the wonderful quality of life we have. We've got such relatively high salaries, you know. So if we let more people in um, because we believe that wealth is just this finite pool to spread around, we're going to dilute the wealth and everyone's going to be poorer. Um, it's based on, I think, it, uh, although in some cases it's a genuinely held belief that needs to be understood and respected, I think it's based on a, an economic illiteracy um, because... Wealth is not a finite pool. Um, when you give people the opportunities to um, to work and produce, they actually ge generally in increase the bounty altogether. They, they generate value that wasn't there before. And also, what you don't see when you look at the wonderful high salaries in a first world country is the lost opportunities, the unseen. Um, an economist called Frederick Bastiat called it the seen and the unseen. You know, we see the salary and we say, that's great, you know. But what about the lost opportunity for businesses, right? 
a, a business is required to pay this high salary um, for, for, a, for a service that it needs. And therefore, it's got less money, less capital to invest in other things. So we don't see what would have been produced if, that, if there was more money free to invest in other, in other people or in other things. That isn't really seen. It's the unseen side um, of economic control, really. Um, but it's, it's incredibly important. And I really hope that uh, that can be better understood uh, generally in first world countries. And hopefully in outsourcing, we're helping to break down some of those barriers um, and these economic realities can become more apparent. One of the biggest fears, though, David, is that these people from developing countries who will tolerate, in inverted commas, uh, you know, suboptimal salaries, tolerate low salaries, um, that they will be taking jobs from people in the West and that will cause, you know, a cascade of, of situations and then no one will be getting a good salary because they'll all be taken by the developing countries. Does that have any economic standing? No, I mean, it's a, it's a common view, um, but I, I, I profoundly believe that it is, a, and, and I think you've articulated it very well, I think it's a, I think it's a profoundly erroneous view. Um, and as I think we touched on in our last podcast, mm. if your prosperity depends on this artificial exclusivity that has been put in place through erected borders, right, through migration controls and everything else, through a deliberate restrictive policy to limit the number of people that are able to work and earn a living in order to sort of prop up those salaries, that to me is not a healthy economic situation to be in. Um, and it, it touches in on that kind of lottery. It's, it's sort of like, well, you know, we can just, by keeping our pool small, by keeping the, the place, by keeping ourselves ring-fenced, all right, then there's fewer of us and then this finite pool of wealth can be shared around us. Um, that's not, A, that is a, it's a recipe for stagnation, right? Because if you are that closed to, to competition and innovation, um, other places will come ahead of you and then eventually you won't just be static, you'll eventually stagnate. Um, and also it's, it's a very erroneous view of how wealth and prosperity comes about, uh, how it's generated and how it's increased. Um, letting because it's, a, it's, it's very complex, isn't it? Because it's a closed system. Like if, if salaries are available at $5 per hour, but because there's limited labor pool and your market says that you have to pay $20 an hour, then in theory, those workers are better off because they're earning $20 an hour. But if all of the input costs are four times more, then it just means that the workers on $20 an hour are going to be paying four times more for all of their goods and services. And they're actually not any better off for it, are they? It's kind of it's yeah. all representative of what that money will afford. And if you're in a closed system, then um, you're no better off necessarily. I think you've got that. And it's and the farther back you step from just the initial microscopic view of the one worker getting a high salary, the more apparent that becomes. Um, I think Friedrich Hayek called it like the unintended consequences. You know, so you put in place this restriction so that um, this means that worker A is going to have a salary of 
$25 or $50 an hour or whatever it is, which you think is going to be a great salary. And then, yes, like, you know, you can, you can look at that and say, right, if we, if we increase the pool of workers available to do that job, then this person would most likely earn less. You know, so you can't really argue with that. That's pretty straightforward. But then when you step back and look at the actual costs that are created by this artificial situation you've put in place to try and keep that particular salary propped up, including the ones you've described, everything else is going to cost more, right? Um, opportunity is going to go elsewhere. Innovation is going to go, going to go elsewhere. Um, and resources that have to go into paying your inflated salary go to your inflated salary and they don't go to other things. They don't go to investing in more productive uses that actually generate more wealth. So that the farther back you step, you actually see that even those people, um, those people that directly, you can directly say, yes, their salary is going to go down. They ultimately don't win either. Mm. Um, but it's a, it's usually, in these cases, it's usually about a very narrow focus. You know, it's like a particular group. It's like, ah, oh, this group here are going to suffer. Uh, if we remove tariffs or if we remove migration barriers or whatever it is, um, and everyone's focus is, is on that, and they don't step back and look at the economy and society as a whole. And so the world is changing. The world is quickly changing. Yeah. And, be, you know, as we developed as a civil society, everything was in the physical realm. You know, we, we bought and sold physical products. Uh, we traded in physical products and... Uh, humans were, you know, very physical. They they um, had to be physically present to work. Mm. And so governments and borders were put in place and could control the flow of these things because they all have such a physical presence and they have um, entry and exit points of each country yes. to control this. It was easy. But now that everything is moving digital, you know, most of the world's biggest companies now – deal in bits and bytes. They have no real physical presence and don't actually sell or trade anything of any physical presence. And the governments aren't able to control this. And then the workers, you know, these companies now are selling to people irrespective of where they are sitting and what country they're in. And then the workers for these companies can work from wherever they are in the world as well. And they can contribute value in a completely non-physical form. People are contributing IP and, and code and uh, voice and support and things like that. All these physical intangibles. The governments have no way of <laughs> policing this, of, of overseeing this. And do you think that the governments are going to try and somehow catch up on this? Are they going to sort of put digital borders in place do you think or does do we need to restructure how all of this is managed uh, i think governments would like to <laughs> i think they really would um I, I think ultimately that's probably a, a game they can't win um but they naturally like to they like to control everything they like to control all interactions between people and they like to clip the ticket as well so you know if they're missing out on tax revenue um, because of outsourcing they what you're pretty sure they'll find a way to at least try and um, to at least try and tax uh, try and collect income tax and revenue and, and payroll tax and things like that um, from from outsourcing activity um, and you know they can do things like I mean you know if you're in a um, 
you know, a business to this day still needs to be domiciled somewhere, you know, and still needs to um, comply and report to government and, and pay taxes and things. So um, I think there are there are treaties in place and there are initiatives to try and um, harmonise the way that businesses are treated and, and, and tax them in such a way that doesn't matter where they're hiring people or where they're selling, um, they still have a requirement to comply with government edicts and pay tax. So I think I think governments are already trying that and they'll continue to do it. And at the beginning when you were just explaining how previously it was very easy to control the movement of, of labour because labour had to be physical, like you said. So, um, you know, if, if service jobs had to be done in the country where the where the customer base was being served and foreign labour was unable to physically enter that country, people weren't able to migrate and work there, that meant that, that labour had to be done in-house. There was no other... It had to be done within the borders of that country. There was no other option. Um, now we have outsourcing, which blows that away. Um, and... Yeah, they'll try to restrict it, um, but ultimately, as as anyone that kind of follows technology knows, um, entrepreneurs and developers uh, and inventors in the software space are always about five steps ahead of government. So whatever government puts in place um, will be only of partial effective effectiveness in the short term, and before long, it'll be completely obsolete and people will find ways around. Um, so ultimately, I think it's a wonderful thing. I think it really is. I think it's. I think it's good. I think there are there are challenges to to a non physical digitized world that we have to deal with. I think um, we have to learn how to um, lead our lives in that space. Um, certain things we used to depend on culturally are no longer there. Um, but overall, I think anything like that is entirely surmountable, and the benefits for any individual and, and for really mankind on a whole are tremendous. And so, again, it, it fills me with great optimism. If you extend this out to another 10 or 20 or 50 years, you know, once they're – because I think the younger generations now, they're not – while they're not born in the metaverse per se, they are pretty much completely entrenched in digital realities, um, you know, digital communities and – most of them will contribute work-wise in a digital way. Uh, and so do you think borders will be relevant in terms of the, the sort of the children of tomorrow? Will it be relevant that the employer is in that is in the same country or will it just become a, a single workforce, a single global workforce? Do you see that as the likely? Yeah, I think... I think it most likely we will have a we will have a global workforce, and you know you won't get a job. You'll just get a job with a you'll you'll there'll be a company that you're interested in working for, and if they you know they may have there may be some notion of a of a global headquarters somewhere like that might still you might still say that you know the Citigroup is an American company and um, you know um, NetWest Bank is a UK company. You, know, you might still have that notion, but if you want to work for that company, you'll just apply to them wherever you are, and it really won't matter. Um, you won't have to have the the right to work in that country because you can work mm -hmm. from whatever country you're in, and um, and that employer employee relationship or you know freelancer contractee relationship can be can be facilitated electronically. Um, 
so yeah, what what we still see today in terms of um, you know um, requirements and restrictions, you can only you can only do this job if you're living in this country and have the right to work. I think that'll disappear. I mean, there's always going to be jobs that require physical presence. Um, we know that, but um, I think we're already heading in that direction. And um, you know, there's a there are trailblazers. You know, you got your digital nomads and people like that. <laughs> That you know, do the same job and just jump around like that. That'll happen as well, um, and it's all good. It's all it's all extremely positive. Um, you know, I've been talking about the new generation. Um, it's they're going to know no other reality, um, and um, you know there are challenges to a digital world. Like I've got a five-year-old daughter and a one-year-old, um, and. I have the benefit of being someone that's fairly digitally aware and fairly internet savvy. I work on the internet all the time, but I, you know, I was educated in a world where people used to write things down and take physical notes and read books and things like that. Uh, and, and it's becoming, and then I can then have that foundation and what I got out of that and then utilize technology and the internet to a great extent. But I, I'm, I'm sort of conscious that kids now possibly will know nothing else only digital. Mm. And so I, I make an effort to make sure that my daughter has limited screen time and things like that and, and, and spends time on more traditional things like playing cards and you know, reading physical books. So it's, I think it's important to um, harness certain aspects of the past um, and, and make sure they aren't lost entirely. Um, but at the same time, it's a, it's a brave and exciting new world. And um, I, I like that it's heading in that direction because so much of so much of what has held us back in the past is ultimately artificial um, and put in place for political motivations rather than the actual motivations of the needs of the people. One thing I see is is hugely exciting is the is the network effect of a single global economy. You know, if there's eight billion people in the world and they are collaborating and cooperating together in a single economy, then you you know, to some degree have 8 billion people interacting with 8 billion, which creates an exponent of 8 billion, whatever that is. That's a lot. That's yep. a big number. You know, whereas previously, if you came from even an affluent country, but your town was 100,000 people, you were somewhat limited to a very limited economy of 100,000 people. Yeah. Uh, and now that is expanding, you know, that's going global and that is infinite times more, uh, I suppose, interaction and Cadillacy and uh, just opportunity. And I think that we're only just beginning to do that. And so we're going to see explosive growth now, explosive innovation, explosive development. Do you see, you know, if there are people that one or two generations from now or as your kids grow up, if they choose a profession that is offline or a traditional profession, do you think that they would almost become like a second-hand, second-class citizen because they, they would only really be able to tap into their local economy versus, you know, those that are plugging into the digital economy, which is 8 billion, it might multiply or magnify certain things. Yeah, I think, um, I think in these situations where um, technology triggers massive change, paradigm shift or whatever you want to call it, um, if you choose a traditional profession, um, you have to learn to accentuate whatever benefits you can give. Now, I, live, I work in uh, e-commerce, and we started our business 
mirroring Amazon selling books, you know, um, and I've been in that business since the early 2000s. And, you know, part of the debate that's always been going on there is, um, well, you know, now that you've got Amazon and, and, and retailers like us, you can order any book. You know, there's an infinite selection of books and you can order any book you like online and get it delivered to your door. What relevance is, does the traditional bookstore have? Well, remarkably, they're still around, you know, and um, there are certainly fewer of them than there were previously. But the ones that have survived have learned how to offer something. They've learned what is it they can offer that um, – that technology and e-commerce can't and to accentuate that, right? So a bookstore, a traditional bookstore that just existed on the high street because that was the most convenient way to get books and what didn't make a particular effort, didn't have particularly good service or an interesting selection, those ones have gone out of business, right? But a bookstore that says, wow, we can offer a genuinely interactive experience um, where you come in and you'll get really wonderful curated service you can touch and feel the books and we have live book readings and we serve coffee and all this kind of stuff. Those are the ones that have survived um, because they've actually identified what is it that remains that we really can offer and let's accentuate and offer that. And so I just imagine, and like you described, traditional professions and things, something similar will occur. You'll probably have less people doing that and the ones that do continue to do that will have figured out how to offer something special, um, something superior to what the you know the online or the digital experience can can provide it's fascinating isn't it you never you never sort of quite ever leave the old behind like you know the example is there's there's still uh, vinyl uh, records there's still yep. the radio there's still television and there's still cinema there's still theater you know like pre pre-technology and all of those things still exist they haven't exactly shut those ones down but, no, then but they've, sort of... they've evolved in a similar trajectory to what I was describing. You know, very mm. good examples to give. Like, I mean, people don't buy CDs or cassettes anymore because they're kind of crap. Like, they were just a very utilitarian um, vehicle for delivering music. And now you can get it online through Spotify and, and elsewhere. So what remains? What still has growing sales? Vinyl. Um, yeah. A physical product that people love because it's tactile. Um, it has a warm sound that, depending on who you talk to, possibly actually exceeds the quality of, of digital audio. Um, and mm -hmm. so it's a little bit more sort of rarefied and niche. Um, but that's what, that's what remains and that's what survives. It is the format that can, provide, um, that can provide the most unique physical experience. And people say, yes, there's a reason why I prefer that over, um, over digital. This actually offers me something more than I'm willing to pay more for, right? Cinema experience, right? So we can, um, we people like going to a movie theater and, and movie and the multiplexes, the ones that are just kind of utilitarian, the kind of flea pit, you know, cheap cinemas that we we were used to most of the time in the past. Those are all folding because they don't really offer anything special. They were just exploiting the fact that they were the most convenient way for people to see movies. What are the ones that are surviving? It's the it's the more niche. You might call it art house specialists, the cult cinemas the ones that are really accentuating what's great about the physical theater experience and providing something special, right? And you could, in the other examples you gave and, and in any, anything else, it's always the same. Um, so there's great opportunity for physical, but we don't need it anymore. That's the thing. If we choose it, we choose it because it really does offer something special, not just because it's the only option in town. And so where do you see this whole thing going? Again, I love to kind of extend these 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 thoughts out into the future and 
and try and iterate them. But I represent, and you know, you've been a big part of the outsourcing industry. I represent the outsourcing industry, and I see it as the industry facilitates this globalized employment. But yeah. as I extend that out 10 to 20 to 30 to 40 years, the outsourcing industry is really an intermediary. And I can only imagine in 20 to 30 years, globalized employment will be the norm and you won't necessarily need an intermediary to facilitate that. You know, just as most businesses don't use an intermediary to hire people locally. So do you, would you see that the uh, global outsourcing might, sorry, global employment might flourish in the Philippines, but the outsourcing industry might wither and die because you because there's yeah. less and less friction, so you don't need that intermediary. I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think ultimately, um, outsourcing providers might, and I, I don't think there's any reason to be worried about this in the short term. But you know, eventually, like you're talking in the on the scale of decades, outsourcing providers might have the same fate as travel agents. Um, you know, an intermediary you needed in order to book travel. Um, now you can connect yourself with an airline or a travel provider and do it all yourself. Um, at, you know, these, and it's, and in most cases, travel agents don't really offer something that most people need to travel. Um, and again, that same pattern emerges. The ones that do survive offer something really special. You know, um, they say, you know, we're not just your, we're not just some kind of a, a booking agent or something. We're someone that will, you, you have to pay us a bit more, but we'll give you a real curated experience. Because if you want to book a holiday in a certain country, we can tell you all about it. We have expertise and we'll give you a tailored holiday and we'll really give you a special experience better than what you can get yourself. Um, I think in, in 20 or 30 years, people that still call themselves outsourcing providers will be doing something like that. They'll be able to – and not to, not to diminish what outsourcing providers do now. I don't mean to suggest that they don't make an effort and they don't bring great specialized knowledge now they do and and they're necessary and they're important um and they're they're a very beneficial thing that connects people and provides value but in order to survive as, a, as someone who's an outsourcing agent you're really going to have to be offering something very 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 special very specialized um when it's when it is possible for somebody to uh, contract and find a worker without needing a an intermediary for the basic stuff. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it, it's that really struck a chord when you when you said travel agents, and it really does seem like that to me. And of course, I want to see this industry flourish. But uh, the outsourcing industry for a long time, you know, thirty years ago, it was the absolute wild west, and there was not yeah. the internet and telecommunications, and people didn't travel so much. So to set up a global infrastructure needed you know, needed a lot of work. And so the outsourcing industry became the gatekeepers for that, for that international access to staffing. Whereas, you know, it, it's, you've now got Upwork, you've got onlinejobs.ph, you've got the standard, well, you've got all the PEOs and oh, like all the um, employer of records. And um, I would see a future not too far away, actually, where Indeed and Monster and all of these job sites, they would just open up to international candidates, you know, and instead of then yes. finding candidates in New York when you're sitting in New York, you're just going to find candidates for that particular role from wherever in the world. Like, 
it doesn't it would they would only have to flick a switch and that would be the case you know? so I, yeah I, don't know. I mean um and i mean a, a typical outsourcing provider now would um would have arguments you know saying well you know sure you can just find somebody and have them apply for your job and work for you as a freelancer uh, but if you're operating in in this country you need to understand the culture and to get the real benefits you need to have a proper team that's set up here and managed and we can help you with that and that may well be true in a lot of cases it is that really is a major value add um, right now over just literally you know finding someone online and saying do you have a computer yes you have an internet connection yes right you know work for me um but the pressure is just going to increase um on on outsourcing providers that uh that offer more or have a business model that's based around doing more they have to really justify why it's necessary and and there's still a lot of work to be done there um and so yeah to your point you know as an outsourcing advocate um it's uh there's plenty of work it's, it's nothing to be worried about for the time being um but that's the natural direction things will take. And, I mean, you mentioned outsourcing and, and the early outsourcers as the gatekeepers. That's true. But the other word I would use is entrepreneurs because entrepreneurship is always about finding two parties, right, that need to be connected, finding an opportunity where they're not connected right now for whatever reason, whether it's from ignorance or physical boundaries or whatever, or digital boundaries in some cases, whatever it is, finding those two things and finding a way to connect them so they can actually interact and trade. Um, that's an incredibly important role in any economy, right? Um, sometimes the notion of a middleman is disparaged, um, but middlemen genuinely do add value when they connect to other parties that otherwise would not have been connected. Um, mm. So it's an incredibly important um, role that um, outsourcing entrepreneurship uh, fulfills for the time being. And, um, you know, when, uh, when we reach the point where, that role is is barely required. I think that'll be a great day because then we'll have a, a wonderfully productive, um, flourishing world full of opportunities. And you know the, that Matthew mentioned, you know the eight billion, etc. Um, think of the wonderful opportunities. So you know if you're an outsourcing provider now and you plan to still be, you know, in business or or doing something or working in thirty years time, um, there'll be plenty of opportunity to do something else. So. Um, it's all very good. It's all something that fills me with great optimism. It's incredible, isn't it? You know, and the reason why the world wasn't connected before to come back full circle, I suppose, is is the technology. It's the internet. Yep. It's the communications. It's the Zoom calls. It's the videos, which effectively is making the world a very small place, even though there's still a yes. lot of geographical distance. And you know, what is amazing is thirty years ago, it was inconceivable that you could work alongside someone sitting on the other side of the planet and that's what these entrepreneurs did as you said you know they created that conduit and it was facilitated by by communications but i think in another 30 years the the people will just be like what you know they they will just assume that you work with the best people regardless of where they're sitting and yes. they would be amazed that 30 years ago that wasn't the case. You know, I think it's sort of 30 years have we've been outsourcing for 30 years and I think now people are just starting to understand it and it's reached the general public. But 30 years from now, I think it will be the default and people will be quite shocked to, to think that, 
you know, the, the previous norm was to hire from your own hometown. Yeah, I, th- I think we'll have to explain the concept of outsourcing <laughs> to people and, um, and, and, and help them get their head around the fact that it was actually a thing. Yeah, <laughs> as like a fax machine. Or a... Yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah crazy. Um, yeah, it's exciting. It's, um, it's, it's great to be a part of. Well, David, I think we've, we've, we've solved that one as well. Haven't we done well? Excellent. So yeah, thank you so much, David. It's, uh, it's great to get your, your insights and it's great to sort of shoot the wind with you on these interesting topics. It's, it's certainly fast moving and I'm excited for the future. Always a pleasure, Derek. Thanks very much. And if anyone wants to reach out or get to know you or join the Ayn Rand uh, Philosophers Club, how can they do that? Right. So um, you'll find me on LinkedIn. So my name's David Pritchard. Um, I, I imagine you'll be able to find my name on the podcast link. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm fairly reasonably fine. I think I'm the only person with my surname apart from my wife and children in the Philippines. So reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, if you want to check out our, um, our Ayn Rand philosophy group here in the Philippines, you can go to aynrand.ph um, and contact me through there and also find a few relevant links. I would love to hear from anybody that's uh, interested in connecting. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Thanks, Derek. That was David Pritchard. If you want to get in touch with David, go to our show notes. Uh, that is at outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. And as always, if you want to ask us anything, then just drop us an email to ask at outsourceaccelerator.com. See you next time.